I'd asked the question last week down in San Antonio, what on earth is God doing? And I remember preaching a sermon by that title about a year or so ago and also doing a couple programs on it. I think it's a very valid question because if I were to ramble through some of the doctrines of the Orthodox churches in the United States, the so-called Protestant churches or the Catholic, for that matter, of the Christian religion, I can't really come to understand any plan or purpose or program that God has in mind that he is working out here on this earth into which I fit that has any cohesiveness that leads me from point A to B or point 1 to point 2 in some logical progression so that I as a rational, I hope, thinking human being can come to understand what life is all about. I take a look at the various Protestant doctrines, and I have to ask the question, well, and I can see where you can't, you can't see behind you, and I'm looking at little plastic flowers out the door, and there again I refer to it time and again as a graveyard across the street. Now, in that graveyard, there are not little thumbs-up signs and thumbs-down signs. I can't wander over there and look at the tombstones to tell where all those folks went. See, the people that attended the funeral services thought they were just honoring the body. They didn't think they were really in communication, except maybe they thought, well, and I know people do wonder this, is old Uncle Henry hovering near the casket? Uh, is he right over here behind me? Is he sitting on Aunt Martha's shoulder? Is he kind of standing back of the minister and listening? Is he kind of relaxing, whatever souls do, you know? We, we think of them, I guess, in our Protestant background or our upbringing as a kind of a wisp, like maybe green smoke or mist. You can't take out a soul and look at it. I don't know if people think, well, maybe the soul has the same form and shape you do, but it's like an ethereal kind of a body. It would have your nose and your ears and your feet and toes, and you could recognize it without any clothes on it, although we don't let our minds go that far as to wonder uh, about, about naked souls. But people do think about, about souls and about a sort of a, uh, a counterpart of your human physical body. Is God a soul farmer? Is that what God is? Is this world an area where he's planted seed, that's we human beings, in which are souls? And every time somebody dies, that soul, if, if that person has confessed Christ, goes off up to heaven, and there they are. And, and God looks out his heavenly mansion at the window, and there go some souls floating by. What does he do with them? I've never heard a sermon explaining that. What does he want with them? Never heard a sermon explaining that. What do they do when they get there? What, what good are they? Uh, what is to be accomplished? I've never heard a sermon explaining that. Never read a booklet or an article. I've never had a Protestant minister explain it to me. I've never tuned into a television program or a radio broadcast and heard, all right, you've just gone through the pearly gates, you've satisfied St. Peter, he's closed the ledger and said, yes, Joe Jones belongs in here. Now what? I think that would be a great sermon title. I think if a minister could say, Beyond the pearly gates, then what? I think he could get somebody's attention. There'd be a lot of so-called Christian people who've never heard that explained. They'd like to have it explained. Then what? Isn't it strange that you cannot find the expression in the Bible, quote, when I get to heaven, or I will see you in heaven, or we will all be in heaven, 
Or won't it be nice when we get to heaven? Or in heaven we'll be doing this or that. Isn't there? You can search in the exhaustive concordance, which even has the words like for, and, and to, and from, and but, and how, and so on, all the hundreds of places where the word and occurs in the Bible. Prepositions, conjunctions, they're all listed there. So you can save yourself a lot of time, get Strong's or Young's exhaustive concordance, or one of the others, and search through there and try to find any of those expressions. They are not there. Now, right now, in this world, with Gross Tuesday behind us in New Orleans just the other day, that's what Mardi Gras means, gross or abominable Tuesday, that is a pre-Lenten ceremony that traces itself back, actually, to the ancient Druids of Ireland and beyond to ancient Babylon, but people don't know that. And so I ask the next question, what is Lent? Is it the past of tomorrow? He lent me his motorcycle, or he lent me his rake. Uh, you cannot find Lent in the Bible, can you? Why? Now, with the one exception of Acts 12.4, and that is a perversion in the English language Bible, it crept in long after the invention of printing, long after Gutenberg. It is not even found in the original Latin text in the Greek, and it is found in none of the original codices. The word Easter is not in the Bible. Why? The word Christmas is not in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Why? The expression immortal soul is not in the Bible anywhere. Why? Ever-burning hell, not in the Bible. Why? And the word rapture, nowhere in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Why? Isn't it strange that the very backbone of all of supposed Christian religion is not in the Bible? That ought to be dumbfounding to people. I ask those questions time and again on the radio and the television programs, and I've been announcing that $10,000 check for 28 years now. Oh, I've had a few foolish people. Well, they're well-meaning people. I shouldn't call them foolish. I don't think they are. But they... They deal in metaphors. They deal in mysticism. It's like the Bible doesn't really mean what you think it means when you read it. If it says, see the dog run, uh, like in your primer, if you're le learning how to read, that doesn't mean see the dog run. It means watch the cat crawl. You know, When they read the Bible, they, they read it differently than they really see it there. Now, why is it that the word rapture is found nowhere in the Bible? I want to explain that today because that's one of the subjects, unlike heaven, hell, the soul, and all of these others I've mentioned, that we yet do not have, do not have as yet, in print. So you can't go out here and get a booklet or a major article that explains about the rapture. And yet the rapture is a cornerstone, foundational doctrine of the so-called Christian religion. The word rapture appears nowhere in the Bible. There are three Greek words from which the expression arrive or the coming of Christ or the, uh, I don't even think it is translated in the word presence. It may be in a couple of cases, but let me give you those three Greek words. We'll come back to them. Now, the word is, first of all, parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A, which is 3952 in Strong's if you're interested. 
And then the second word is epiphania. You've heard of the English expression epiphany. I think sometimes even the word epiphany is incorporated in some of the churches. Epiphania is 2015 in Strong's, and I'll give you the expression and the meaning of it in a minute. And the final is apocalypsis, from which the word apocalypse comes, and the word revelation and apocalypse are synonymous. So the apocalypse of John in the book of Revelation and apocalypsis, the same word, which means a disclosure or a revealing. Revelation is a very good English translation for the Greek word apocalypsis. Supposedly, according to novices who know practically nothing of the Greek language, the Greek language harbors hidden secondary or tertiary meanings so that a novice could take a Strong's Concordance and do a much better job than the translators did in 1611 or even previous to that time. So that every time you look up a Greek word, you're really on the trail of something exciting. Now, nearly all words have synonyms, don't they? Practically every word has other synonymous words, which mean virtually the same thing, very close relationship to words in our language, and so it was in Greek. So oftentimes, people who don't even know the Greek alphabet, let alone what different words mean, they couldn't find it looking at the Greek letters. They've got to look at the English anglicized letters and to try to find a Greek word. And they will look at a secondary or tertiary meaning of the Greek word, and they say, aha, that's what the Bible really means. It doesn't mean what it says in the King James Bible or the Moffat or the Farrar Fenton or the Revised Standard or the Companion Bible of a good speed or some of the other translations, but it means the secondary or tertiary meaning out of the Greek. Well, you know, even in the secondary, tertiary meanings of the Greek language, you cannot find the word rapture. The word parousia, let me take you to a scripture is the best way to do this. Matthew 24, 27, 24, 37, and 24, 39. We will find the English word coming. Let me begin a little ahead of that because here's the best one. It's right in verse 3 of the 24th chapter of Matthew. While you're turning there, just stop at the beginning of the chapter. Matthew 24, and as he, Christ, sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? He talked about the destruction of the temple the collapse of Jerusalem, the tearing down of every stone so that not one would be left atop another. When will all of this happen? When this tumult? When this destruction? And what shall be the sign of thy coming? The word coming is parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A in the Greek. What will be the sign of your parousia, of your coming, your arrival, your advent, when you get here? You can think of various... English expressions, and of the end of the world, the end of the age. And Jesus answered, and what did he say? Deception, wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famine, pestilences, earthquakes, all this is the beginning of sorrows, verse 8, then martyrdom of saints, people offended, delivering one another into officialdom, to the jails, to be tortured and persecuted. He talks about enduring to the end. He talks about the abomination of desolation, great tribulation in verse 21. False Christs and false prophets. Now, as we go down to verse 27, he continues to answer the question in great and in fine detail. Here's what will happen. Tumults, wars, drought, disease, famine, millions dying. That's what happens before my coming. Of the three Greek words I gave you, generally coming from the English coming, the coming of Christ, the word parousia, 
is the one that is chosen by the preachers of the rapture as applying to the rapture. Now, back up a step. What is the rapture? Many of you probably know, but there is a cliché. The way they express it is, Christ is coming in two phases or two stages. First, he is going to come to the earth for his saints, rapture them away up to heaven, thus taking them away from the terrible tribulation and the troublous times to come, so that they, the saints of God, those who have given their hearts to the Lord, will not be here on this earth when all the tumult and the horrible Armageddon and these wars and droughts and famines and boils on people, you know, and nuclear weapons and so on, is happening. Believers in a rapture may be found with the bumper sticker I've mentioned, in case of a rapture, this automobile will be unoccupied. They may, you may see that on their, on their back bumper. I've seen a few right here in Tyler. The rapture is one of these doctrines that is commonly assumed. It's never re-supported by preaching. I imagine that not one of you, even with your Protestant backgrounds in the past, where you've sat in Sunday-keeping churches and you've heard sermons, have actually heard a sermon where you sat there and in at least a half hour, which would be a very lengthy sermon in many churches, the minister wandered through, went through materially and, and very carefully and in substance, say, 15 texts, and asked you to turn back and forth through the Bible and tried to prove to you the rapture. Now, he couldn't show you where the word rapture appears in the Bible because it's not there. But you just never had that happen, did you? It just assumed, somehow brought in as an adjunct to something else, and then will come that blessed hope, the rapture, and all of the saints will be raptured, praise the Lord, and so on. It just kind of brought in, in connection with other things they talk about. Now, there's one guy that comes on TV, and he, I believe, is the son of a gentleman who wrote a booklet years ago about the rapture, whose name was Richard DeHaan, I think the senior. And he is now dead, and his son is on television and does believe in and preach the rapture, and perhaps even puts out a little booklet on it. So the rapture says that Christ is going to come, but in two phases. First, he comes near so that his presence is there, but he is not there. And he catches away his saints from the earth. Believe it or not, they use the same scriptures that other churches use to go to a place on the earth to be taken to a place of safety, hidden away in the caves in the Jordanian desert, they use the same scriptures to sneak away just as the end of the ballgame is near. Just while the, word, the world needs Christians as never before, just when God needs a witness as never before, just when the action gets started, just when the hateful kings and despots and the autocrats and dictators and filthy mass murderers and the Khomeinis of the world, the mystics and the idiots, are slaughtering hundreds of millions when they need a man of God, like the ones we read about in the Old Testament, when the captain and his fifty come and say, come on down from the hill, say, if I'm a man of God, you say I am, so let the fire of God come down. Just when men of God are needed on the earth, they look around, there's nobody that represents God, they're all gone. They were whisked away, put on the sidelines, they blew the whistle, time out, the game's about to get started, all of the audience went home. And so the rapture occurs, the cars are idling, empty, the smoke is coming up from a diesel exhaust, and nobody in there. You find out from the bumper sticker, the rapture must have happened, they're gone. I remember sermons where one gentleman had had a nightmare, 
And he said, the nightmare was that I looked around, all of my friends and my Christian friends, were, were well, there was air between their feet. I could actually see the air, and they were slowly being taken up. And I was standing there, and I was trying to go, and I wasn't going anywhere. And I tried the elbow flap, you know, or the old swimming motion. Nothing worked. I was just rooted to the soil. And there they were all being taken away. Now, he got that from Matthew 24. We'll read up to it. But first, verse 27. What is the coming of the Son of Man like? Remember all that we read up to, all of these calamitous, tumultuous, global events of great wars. For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines even unto the west, so shall also the coming, parousia, of the Son of Man be. When was the last time you saw lightning? How did it shine? Now, years ago, there was a doctrine in the church that said that when Jesus arrives, he is going to flash around the earth like a bolt of lightning because it was presupposed, it says in the book of Revelation, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, yea, also they which pierced him. Oh, then the requirement is every human eye on the face of the earth must see Christ when he comes. True? Well, now, wait a minute. People are in buildings. People are asleep. You know, half the world is dark and half is light. People are down in mines. It, it, it seems to tell me, as a matter of fact, that at the time of the revelation of the great brightness of Christ in heaven, people, captains, kings, and etc., rush to the rocks and the mountains and say, Fall on us and hide us from the wrath of him that sitteth upon the throne, because who can look on God and live? And the people turn their eyes and say, I can't look at that. Well, now, the clue is, yea, they also, that pierced him. What happened to them? Well, they're dead. Well, then when are they going to see Christ? Revelation 20, verse 5, the rest of the dead lived not again till the thousand years were finished. So they're not going to see Christ until in the great general resurrection, are they? So does Revelation, the first chapter, when it says, every eye shall see him, mean, just logic would tell you the answer is no, that every eye must see him when he comes. Well, then the idea that Christ coming as lightning, flashing around the world like a, a, an instant and being seen by everybody, is utterly false and unnecessary, isn't it? This word lightning is an interesting word. It doesn't mean lightning. It means lightning, the way many people sometimes misspell it. Lightning is L-I-G-H-T-N-I-N-G. Lightning, like the lightning sky, is L-I-G-H-T-E-N-I-N-G. What lightning do you know? And in the Greek word there is a slight difference, by the way, that comes out of the east and shines unto the west. It happens every day. Why, the sun arises in the east and shines until it disappears in the west. Christ is called the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness in one occasion in the Old Testament. And it says his face shines like the sun in its strength. Isn't it interesting that the time of Christ's arrival is called the day of the Lord? And that in any given day, a 24-hour period, the sun remains where it is, but the world slowly rotates and all parts of the earth are exposed to the sun. If Christ takes one day like a giant comet blazing, like the sun itself moving toward earth 
Every eye, every living eye, every qualified eye, every eye that will not be consumed, every eye that will not be terrified, every face that would dare to turn itself toward God, will indeed be able to see the manifestation of the Son of God. Other people will not. Just an aside, but going on now about the Great Tribulation, the sign of the Son of Man in heaven is mentioned in verse 30. Notice that. Is this a secretive coming? Is it something quiet, something sneaky and surreptitious where he comes for his saints? Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, includes all nations, and they shall see the Son of Man coming. There is one of our three Greek words. I haven't looked that one up to make sure whether it's parousia, apocalypsis, or epiphania. In the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, Certainly, verse 31 does begin to deal with the gathering of the saints, but when? Fix that indelibly in your mind. At the time of the second coming of Christ. Then he shall send his angels with the sound of a great trumpet. I submit that sound of a trumpet is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 50-52, where it says, The great trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and also the great sounding of the final trumpet blast at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised. The last of the trumpet plagues, when a great trumpet shall sound, that is pictured in the book of Revelation chapter 19, it's the same trumpet. It's the trumpet that causes the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and when does that sound? At the end of the seven last plagues. And the seven last plagues are... The third woe, which is the seventh of the trumpet plagues. The trumpet plagues do not even begin until after the heavenly signs. And the heavenly signs do not begin until at the interruption of or after the great tribulation. We'll see that in a moment because we will see exactly the time sequence of events in the book of Revelation. This certainly is the gathering of the elect together. Now, we're familiar with 1 Thessalonians 4.17. The Lord cometh with clouds. And we will be caught up together with him in the air, and so we shall be with the Lord. He goes on with a parable in verse 32. You see the leaves, summer is near. We're now in springtime here in Texas, and I was looking at my little flowering peach tree this morning. So when you see all these things, verse 33, you know that it, the great tribulation, heavenly signs, day of the Lord, and culminating in the second coming of Christ is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Which generation? I take it to mean a dual meaning. Number one, typically, those people who lived in that time saw the sack and the pillaging of Jerusalem, and most of them died, and many of the horrible trials that were depicted here came to pass. But certainly, I say, it must mean, if I am to understand Christ's words correctly, the generation which is alive when they see these things happening. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knows no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 37, the word coming is parousia. Now in the Greek, parousia means, and I quote from the exhaustive concordance, a being near, an advent often return, specifically the return of Christ to punish Jerusalem or finally the wicked. It means, and I quote, aspect, coming, presence. So much for the meaning of parousia. So it should be translated as it is, 
It could be translated, so shall also the arrival of the Son of Man be, or his getting there, or whatever other synonym you choose out of the English language, but coming is fine, and it's easy to understand. Like it was when Noah was building an ark, and it was a tumult that caused the drowning of all of the human race, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Not that any of that was a sin. It just portrays that they were going about their daily way of life. Until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. Very important to notice that language. The flood took them all away. Now, the Bible is using that expression to show they were killed. They drowned like rats. They were swept away by the flood. So shall also the coming parousia, not epiphania, not apocalypsis, looked it up this morning, but parousia, the coming of the Son of Man be. Well, if the coming of the Son of Man is accompanied by great massive death and by giant tumultuous signs in the heavens and by global warfare and by earthquakes and drought and disease, is there anything sneaky or quiet or surreptitious about it? Is it as if normal society is going along and suddenly people have gone through the tops that are autos and they just wafted away somehow spiritually without even so much as stepping outside, rolling down the window or opening the door? And they've been wafted away somewhere? Notice the description. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two shall be grinding at the mill, two women. The one shall be taken and the other left. Now, the way the church taught this for years and years and decades and decades was those who are taken are taken to a place of safety. The rapturists believe those who are taken are whisked away to heaven. I understand that some people have begun to revise the doctrines of another church a little bit, and that one presupposed right up here in Big Sandy last year sometime that the supper that is depicted as the supper where Christ and the bride, like the bridal supper and his church, sit down to a banquet, actually takes place in heaven. I was surprised at that because, of course, I know better. I know the Bible does not say that the saints are going to go to heaven at all, not for 10 minutes, not for 30 seconds, not ever, that God is coming here and the 22nd chapter of Revelation says the throne of the Lamb and of God shall be in it, and that the headquarters of the universe, and therefore heaven, because heaven is where God is, and when God the Father and Christ the Son are both on this earth, this is going to be heaven. So I guess technically you could say we're going to wait for heaven to come down to the earth, and then I guess we'll be in heaven. But the traditional view of us wafting off up into the skies beyond Aldebaran or Beltagues or somewhere else out there beyond the black hole of the other side of the umpteenth galaxy, 13 million parsecs, the other side of Alpha Centauri, is just not going to happen. So when it says here in verse 39 that the flood took them all away, what does Bible language demand? The expression, they shall be taken away, means drowned. They are the ones having the hard time of it, aren't they? The ones who were left, who were they? Noah and his family. It looks like maybe they've gotten it twisted around backward and the wrong way. When it says, then shall two be in the field, one shall be taken, where is he going? Who takes him? Why would one be in a field and then someone is just taken? 
Well, I read in my Bible, the father will betray the son, the daughter, the mother, that a man's foes will be they of his own household, that think not what you shall say in the day that they deliver you up. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake, shackled, manacled, arrested, reported upon to the officials. You will be taken. When someone grabs you and they take you somewhere, that's unwillingly. I think the Bible is telling us the ones who are taken are by no means the ones who are safe. I think it's telling us the ones who are left. Wouldn't you rather be left alone in your own wheat field? Left alone doing your own laundry? Left alone, uh, you know, running your business or mowing your front yard or whatever it is you're doing? This is talking about people going about their daily business. And some of them are just left alone, not bothered. And others are taken somewhere. And the Bible language seems to imply those who are taken are the ones who are about to have the hard time. At least so it was in the case of those left behind at the time of Noah's flood, who were taken away by the flood. It goes on to say in verse 42, Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. And if the good man had known, of course, he would have been there, would have been guarding, because you don't know. Now, verse 44, Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man shall come, or comes. And there again, one of our three words, Apocalypsis, Epiphania, or Parousia. The word epiphania means this, epiphany, the advent or the arrival of Christ, a manifestation appearing or brightness. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. First Timothy 6.14, right quickly, back just before the book of Hebrews, First Timothy 6.14. Here is an example of the Greek word epiphania, and it says, that you keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only has immortality. Interesting statement. We do not have it. It is not self-inherent within human beings. Christ only has immortality. God only has immortality. I could give you some more, but let me just give them to you and come very quickly to a pivotal scripture. 2 Timothy 1.10, the word that is used there for coming or for appearing is epiphania. Also, 2 Timothy 4.1 and 4.8. Now we come to the scripture, Titus 2.13, where some real interesting little games are played. How much meaning can you get out of a conjunction? Just how much meaning can be loaded into a preposition in the Bible? There's a fellow, as I said, who appears as if he has a hard time. Maybe he's been burnt or been scarred, but he's, his eyes kind of turned down. And he reads this scripture on television with a voice that just kind of never gets out of a monotone like this. And he reads this scripture as follows in verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Looking for that blessed hope and, and, it says, the glorious appearing of the great God. Now, these are two different things. There is first that blessed hope, the rapture, and then in addition to, and he goes on, I just I can't stand it, but it drives me crazy. But it says here, looking for that blessed hope. Aha, there is the rapture. Believe it or not, that's Richard DeHaan's main scripture. That is the prize choice P 
pivotal scripture. You just found the little amber bead in the bottom of the bottle. I mean, this is, this is uh, the famous sword of Damocles. This is uh, the Holy Grail. You have discovered the pivotal verse in the entirety of the Bible where the rapture is substantiated. It plainly tells you, looking for that blessed hope. And what is that hope but the hope? of the rapture. And, see, in addition to that, differently from the blessed hope, over and beyond, beside that, on beyond the rapture when it's over, and the glorious appearing. Because, you see, the first time he comes, he doesn't appear. He just kind of sneaks in like a near miss and skips off the earth's atmosphere with a trail of Christians wafting off with him. And the second time he comes with his saints and he stays around a while. Why? Why bother? If he got all the good grain off the earth anyway, there's nobody left but a lot of chaff. Why does he bother coming back in the second place? You really can't, you shouldn't apply logic to so-called mainstream fundamentalist Christian doctrine because they defy logic. Not a one of them makes any sense. There's no logic to them. Well, let's go on and just look right here. These things in verse 15 speak and exhort and the week after that. Now, first you speak and resort, and, you know, then a week later, and rebuke with all authority. So there's a great huge pause there, maybe a few decades or whatever, implied by the word and, isn't there? Well, no, of course there isn't. You don't use the English language that way. This is merely saying in two different ways that the appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ is both the blessed hope and it is glorious. And the word and is merely a conjunction. You can just take a common, take the word and out. Looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you would understand what the Bible is telling you. This is not telling you there is a rapture, and yet, believe it or not, that is the pivotal verse in Dehan's booklet, that blessed hope, and the one I've heard him say on television, which is supposed to substantiate the rapture. The word apocalypsis means, and I quote, it's 602 in Strong's. Disclosure, appearing, coming, lighten, meaning to lighten up or to elucidate, manifestation, be revealed, revelation. It comes from the word just ahead of it, which is a root, 601, which means to take off the cover, to disclose, to reveal. A couple of scriptures to prove the meaning of that one. Luke 2.35, you don't need to turn to them. If you don't want to, I'll do it real quickly, but if you want to check up make sure I quote them correctly. Verse 35, the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Let me see. 235, I'm sorry. That was 135. Glad I read that. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And the word revealed is apocalypsis. Now here, obviously, it cannot be talking about a rapture. It's talking about people's minds and attitudes being revealed, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So the word apocalypsis means revealed. Another case, Luke 17.30 talks about Christ. Then shall the Son of Man be revealed. And the word is apocalypsis. 1 Corinthians 2.10 is another example. And it means exactly, as I said, the translators knew exactly what it meant, and so they said that it meant to be revealed, and that's all. We don't need to know beyond that, really. In verse 10, But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. Again, the root Greek word apokalupsis, which is the title of the book of Revelation.
In 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 7 is a little more interesting scripture because it does begin to deal with the second coming of Christ. And the same word apocalypsis is used. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 7. And to you who are troubled, breaking into the middle of a thought, rest with us, that is to be recompensed, tribulation of those that trouble and those who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, etc. That word is apocalypsis. So those are the, some of the meanings, I mean some of the places where those three Greek words are used in the Bible. Let's get it very clearly in our minds. First of all, the word rapture is found nowhere in the Bible. The rapture presupposes, as does the doctrine of escapism to Petra or escapism anywhere else, that God in his mercy would not subject we Christian people to horrible, hard times, suffering, tribulation, persecution, perhaps torture, perhaps death. That is unthinkable. So the doctrine that has been concocted over the years, that has been deeply seated in the minds of many people, has to do with the idea of church eras and that the church is divided up into certain divisions according to a time sequence and that God is going to use torture, and I've been over this so many times I hate to repeat it, to bring about repentance in those who cannot apparently be led to repentance by the call of God's Spirit, who cannot be urged to repentance by the power of preaching, who cannot be somehow brought to repentance by Bible study or personal prayer, so the only way to get them to repent is to just, you know, use a little blood. Use the sharp edge of a sword or a 22 caliber bullet or whatever, but they're going to repent sooner or later before they die with their last gasp because God is going to see to it they're thrown into the great tribulation and then all the good Christians can say they'll get what's coming to them and maybe eventually they will repent. Well, that is an abominable doctrine and is not to be found in the Bible. Let's turn to Joel 2.31 right quickly. And a lot of you have this down in your minds perhaps and could quote it. But if you look at Joel 2.31 and one other scripture I will give you and it's right after Hosea, which is right after Daniel if you're looking in the Bible. 2.31, it says this. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Heavenly signs before the day of the Lord. Matthew 24, 29. Matthew 24, 29. Gives us the word after to understand. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And the stars shall fall from heaven, a meteorite shower, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. Tribulation. What comes after? Heavenly signs. Heavenly signs, Joel 2.31. What comes just before the day of the Lord? Heavenly signs. So what is the sequence of tribulation, heavenly signs, the day of the Lord? Just exactly as I mentioned it. And of course, is absolutely cleared if you turn to Revelation. And we'll do that now to go to chapter 6 and pick up the time sequence of certain of the great events of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, chapter 6, shows us six seals that are opened. The seventh is not opened until a little later, little later on, beginning in chapter 8, and there are some inset chapters. 
The first four seals are recognized almost universally by anybody from Billy Graham to all of the Protestant preachers as being the Great Tribulation. It's obvious that they are because it includes war, the red horse of verse 4, famine and drought depicted by the third and the fourth seal, death and the beast of the earth in verse 8. The fifth seal is religious martyrdom, verse 9. Now there's a metaphor that is used in verse 10. They, these slain ones who appear figuratively in this scripture, cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet a little season until, notice the language, now where are we in a time sequence of events? We're at the fifth seal of the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation, the great wars and drought and famine and disease that Christ spoke of, we read in Matthew 24, are well underway, and people are being killed. They're being martyred. People are dying around this earth. Figuratively, in metaphor, blood cries from the earth in the Bible. Genesis 4.10. In the scene following the slaying of the first human being who died, a victim of his own brother who was murdered, God says, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. We use that expression. It's a metaphor doesn't mean blood has a mouth and blood speaks any more than it means there are souls who are speaking or something like that, but they're crying out for vengeance. It says who is going to be killed. Their fellow servants and their brethren should be killed when, at, during, and after the fifth part of this seal, the fifth seal of the Great Tribulation, are these Christians? They're called the fellow servants of the slain saints. They're called their brethren. They're still on the earth. They haven't died yet, but they're called blessed that they should be killed as they were. Now comes the sixth seal. So, so far we have strong biblical indication that Christians are on the earth exposed and possibly subject to martyrdom during the Great Tribulation. Correct? Well, of course. The Bible plainly says so. The rapturists say, oh no, they're taken away. And you see, the rapturists confuse the tribulation and day of the Lord. It's all the same thing to them. Tribulation, day of the Lord are the same thing. They recognize no difference, and they just believe it is generally the time of the end, the day of the end, the time of great calamities, and surely God would not allow Christians to be there during that time. Chapter 7, we know, is the sealing of the 144,000. It says in verse 3, to the angels having the four winds, typical of great plagues of God, verse 3, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I recently completed, it's available out there, an in-depth article on the subject of the 144,000, as some of you would like that one. Everything about it and around it. And he counts all of these people of the tribes of Israel. Now, who are they, and who are the ones who are with them in white robes? We'll ask that question in verse 14. I said unto him, Sir, you know. He had asked, Who are they? And he said unto me, These are they which came out of, which emerged through the great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So they are converted. They are Christians, and where are they? On the earth. And they have come through the tribulation. How? Because God sealed them. Where were they? Oh, it doesn't say. I guess wherever Aser, Manasseh, Naphtali, Gad, Benjamin, Dan, Reuben, 
wherever they lived. It says here, a great innumerable multitude of all nations. Where are all nations? Well, they're in their national borders. They're not in just one cave that I know of. They're just wherever they happen to be, scattered around the earth in situ, wherever they happen to be. And because they have the seal of God, they are protected. Now God says, in verse 16, they won't hunger anymore. Maybe some of them have been near starvation. They won't thirst anymore. They've been crying for water. Neither shall the sun light on them, and some of them have been blistered and sunburned. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. Again, a metaphor, a type of salvation in God's kingdom. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Who are these innumerable multitudes from all races and nations? And the 144,000. They're converted Christian people. Even as Christ said, the last shall be first, and that sometimes harlots and publicans shall go into the kingdom of God before you Pharisees, as he said to them. So it comes to pass that the great harvest of the work of God, which doesn't seem to be reaping that big of a harvest today, but is more of a work of witness and warning, occurs when human minds, who have just heard with part of their hearing, finally see with their eyes what they have been warned about come to their senses and repent and call upon God, and God protects them, and they in their area endure and see, even though it says they might be sunburnt, they might be on the verge of starving. It describes people who were hungry, people who were exposed, people who were thirsty, people who were crying. How did they do that? Let's look at verse 14 again. These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Did they wash their own linen? Did they wash their robes in their own blood? Did Christ get them righteous by putting the thumb screws to them, by torturing them, by putting them in the Great Tribulation, by the elite core of the church creeping away to the caves and leaving all of the Laodicean people behind, where they're subjected to terrible torture. And under that torture, then they finally repent with their last gasp of breath. And God says, all right, you're going to be in my kingdom, but only as a doorkeeper. You're not as good as the others who weren't here to be a witness when all of this was happening. I took them away. I secreted them away in caves and put a seal on them and hid them out where they couldn't even listen to a radio, didn't know what was going on. No, they washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. It is Christ's blood and Christ's sacrifice that was efficacious for them. And even at this last moment, people of all nations and races and 12,000 of each tribe of Israel that we don't know and haven't met and haven't heard from and probably aren't on our mailing list yet are going to be converted and they're on the earth. The 144,000 are converted by the great manifestation of the heavenly signs following the horrors of the tribulation. Where are they? They're on the earth. The rapture says all Christians are whisked away before all this happens. Are these Christians? Well, you can't read that description about the lamb in the midst of them, feeding them, wiping tears gently from their eyes and say they're not Christians. So they are Christians. They are on the earth. They weren't raptured anywhere. The tribulation is over because the heavenly signs have halted it, and the day of the Lord is about to begin, and Christians are on the earth. Saints, 
Good saints, good people, praying people, Christian people, believe it or not, are going to be martyred. Notice Daniel 7 and verse 19. I'll come back to the book of Revelation, so I'll try to keep my place there. Daniel 7 and verse 19. I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, whose teeth were of iron, nails of brass, devoured and broken pieces, and stamped with the residue of his feet. All right, this fourth beast, embodying all of the characters of the first three, is ancient Rome with all of its ten successive revivals. The little horn is the papacy, in verse 20. Verse 21, I beheld, and the same horn made war, not with inferior so-called Laodicean people, but with the saints, and prevailed against them. They're saints, and he prevailed against them. Again, look at the twelfth chapter of Hebrews. Don't turn there, but there's a list of martyrs of God. And ask yourself your question, was it the stronger Christians or the weaker ones who were always called upon to give a last testimony in ways, in places, and at times of which we know absolutely nothing? I don't think the apostle Peter died in vain. I don't know where he died. I don't know how. I don't know who was present. I don't know what he said, and neither do you. Tradition, through maybe Polycarp or some of the students of John, claims that Peter was crucified upside down. Why? Is that ancient Catholic tradition to try to make his death even more horrible than that of Christ? I, I suspect that story. It doesn't ring true to me. I don't think they crucified people upside down. But anyway, I don't know anything about his death. Maybe it'll be a chapter in the Bible eventually when God does write and tell us about it. I don't believe, though, though he died in obscurity, that he died in vain. I think Peter, in a lot of ways, was a weak person. Paul had to rebuke him to his face because he was a little bit of a racist made a big mistake right at the Feast of Tabernacles and got it from the table of some of the dark swarthy Gentiles and rushed over to be with the Jews. And Paul had to really catch him up short. Peter disclosed some human weakness. But, you know, Peter was a converted man. He was a Christian. He was God's apostle. And I'm sure that his death was not in vain. How long and at what time setting does this occur? How long do these saints endure this kind of thing when they're being tormented? I beheld the same horn, made war with the saints, and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came, obviously those that survived or were resurrected, that the saints possessed the kingdom. So when are they tormented? And when are they saints, Christians? And when does this beast power make war against them? Well, just at and before the time of the second coming of Christ. And the kingdom is set up, and they're given their reward. Saints. In verse 25, This little horn shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out who? Inferior Laodiceans? No. The saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times of dividing a time. Three and a half years. Who are they? Those who were given into the hands of this beast during the three and a half years of the tribulation. It's the very same time. Times and time and half a time. Notice verse 27. The kingdom and dominion, the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, just like we've already read, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Many more statements like that. Notice in verse 25, well, in verse 23, and I'll read up to it, of chapter 8. 
Here's this final great prince who is typical of Alexander the Great, and I think also typical of Adolf Hitler. His power shall be mighty. Uh, verse 23 says he is a king of fierce countenance. Verse 24, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. This is Daniel 8, 24. He shall destroy wonderfully, shall prosper and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. Oh, then the, the unholy people, the dirty uh, Laodiceans are the ones who are, are really gotten to by this beast power. That's been taught. That's been ingrained in people's minds by the decades in a, in a church which calls itself the Church of God. And it's not true. It never has been true. The ones who are going to be martyred are the strongest of the Christians, not the weakest. It says this time and again in the Bible, but people seem to just look at look right at it and not see what it says. Notice the twelfth chapter, Daniel 12, and at the very end of this book, and it says in verse 7, I heard the man clothed with linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him it liveth forever, that it shall be for a time, times and a half. There again, there's a three and a half year period of the Great Tribulation. When he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people. They're still on the earth, but their organization is scattered, their power is destroyed, they are there, but under conditions of privation, hardship, who knows, maybe martyrdom in some cases, scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. Now back to the book of Revelation again. In Revelation 7, I'm sorry we covered that part. Let's go to Revelation 9 now, and we'll pick up the time sequence there. And verse 1, the fifth angel sounded. Notice that these are the beginning of the trumpet plagues, and this is the fifth of them, of these great plagues. We are now well into the day of the Lord. The tribulation is over. All of 144,000 innumerable multitude are sealed with the seal of God, and they are Christians now, but God is protecting them wherever they are. Now, in verse 4, when this angel sounds, it is like a great smoke out of a bottomless pit. Verse 2, locusts are depicted, and these are in symbol, but it does have something to do with plagues that fall upon men on the earth. Verse 4, it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. What do you know? Christians, where are they? On the earth. What time is this? The day of the Lord. Tribulation is over. Heavenly signs are over. We're all the way to the fifth of the seven angels in Revelation 9. And there are men on the earth which do have the seal of God. And there are men on the earth which do not have the seal of God. And the men who do have the seal of God are those we read of in the book of Revelation chapter 7, who are the latter harvest of God on this earth of Christians, saints, but now God is protecting them from these great plagues. And to them it was given they should not kill them, and so on. Now it speaks back of the others, but that they should be tormented for five months is speaking of those who don't have the seal of God. The sixth angel sounded, verse 13. This is leading them toward the great battle of Armageddon. And it says they didn't repent, and so on. Now chapter 11. A little bit of an inset, but it happens at about this time that there are two human beings who are called two witnesses. Verse 3, I will give power unto my two witnesses, chapter 11. We don't know who they are, two living human beings. But if you're going to go with the idea of certain 
eras of God's church, then the only era to which they could belong is the last one. Because they are here on the earth, and they are allowed to be killed, and they are martyred. So therefore, if you want a classic example of latter-day Christians, of latter-day Christians involved right in the very work of God, right at the very seat of the power of the beast and the false prophet, which is where they are, right at the world capital of the great beast power, which is right where they are, in the Middle East, in Jerusalem, verse 8, their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And the people of the kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, satellite television maybe, I don't know, and shall not suffer their bodies to be put into graves, and shall rejoice over them, and so on. Here are two prophets, Christians, converted, right at the very central core of the work of God, and they're allowed to be killed. If there's ever a more classic example of who are the martyrs, what kind of caliber are they, what kind of quality of character do they have, are they the stronger of the Christians or the weaker of the Christians, it's all answered by the example of the two witnesses. These are two prophets, and they are to, to be giving their witness for, what, a thousand two hundred and three score days. And here again is our 1260, the duration of both the tribulation, heavenly signs, and day of the Lord, three and a half years. Two and a half years tribulation, short interruption, heavenly signs, the day of the Lord, a year is a day in Bible prophecy, probably one year. After three days, verse 11, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended to heaven, that's the first heaven, not God's heaven, in a cloud, it's where the clouds are, and their enemies beheld them, and then there was a great earthquake. In verse 15, the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. So the seventh trumpet now sounds. Verse 19, the temple of God is revealed in the ark of his testament. There were lightnings and voices and thunderings and a great hail. Chapter 12 is the history of the church. It's an inset chapter. Chapter 13, the beast powers and a mark of the beast. An inset chapter. Now come to chapter 14 and we see again a picture of saints and what's happening at this time. I looked, verse 1, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion. A picture now of Christ having arrived on the earth with him, 144,000, having his Father's name written in their foreheads. Where is Christ? On the earth, on Mount Zion. Where are the 144,000 when we read of them being protected from plagues falling on the earth? Well, we're on the earth. Where are they now? On Mount Zion. When do we see them going anywhere? We don't. They stay where they are, but they had the seal of God while their neighbors didn't. There is no basis for a rapture, and there is no basis for a segment of the church being whisked away into a cave. There is only basis for the belief of an energetic church of praying, diligent, converted, overcoming Christians, some few of whom are strong enough to be selected to be witnesses and martyrs for God and others who are not quite that strong and who therefore are given God's protection because he knows they would perhaps give in and would not endure. And that's all according to God's mercy and God's love. Now they sing this new song, verse 3. No man could learn that song. These are those which were redeemed, verse 3, not from heaven but from the earth. 
Spiritually speaking, it says they are not defiled with women, and that bears some additional explanation I won't go into now, because, you know, Hebrews 13, 8, the, wrong, the, the, the bed is undefiled, and marriage is honorable, and all, and so on. This is speaking in metaphor of false churches and of paganism. It is not saying they were unmarried, and therefore celibacy is to be desired. They're called the first fruits unto God and the Lamb, in verse 4, the end of that verse. In their mouth was no guile. They're without fault before the throne of God, verse 5. Now, a little later on, it talks about the beast and the false prophet being cast into the place of fire and brimstone. Verse 12, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Hold your place and turn back just a couple of pages to chapter 12 and verse 17. Satan the devil is wroth with the remnant, the last vestige of the true church of God. The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. A description of the last generation of Christians on the earth. It does not describe them as lukewarm like the Laodiceans at all, but as those who keep the commandments and have the testimony of Christ, which is Christ's gospel as well as Christ's witness. In verse 13 of chapter 14, Talking of these who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write. An angel is to write this down. Put this in the permanent records. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Where are we here? We're right at the very moment of the arrival of Jesus Christ. We're at the time of the day of the Lord. It flashes back and forth a little bit in the, day, in the book of Revelation. It's talking about the harvest of the earth in verses 14 through 20 of chapter 14. It's talking about the seven last plagues being poured out in chapter 15 and verse 1. And here are those with a statement made, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. But the rapture says they live in the Lord up in heaven. Here's the Bible saying, if someone loses his life, saying, I believe in Jesus Christ, blessed is that person who dies in the Lord from this time on, while these horrible things are going on on the earth. There's no justification for these Protestant doctrines. It'll make sense. Chapter 15 and verse 2, he sees again, as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, the same vision as chapter 14, verse 1. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark. And where are they? Right down here on Mount Zion with Jesus Christ at his second coming. Turn now to the 19th chapter. 17 and 18 are the destruction of the great horror, the great false church. The 19th chapter is the picture of the second coming of Christ. And it shows that he, Christ, comes out of this earth as a returning, conquering king. And I'm going to begin here in verse 7. These great angelic beings are praising God, saying, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. He's still in heaven. They are still on the earth. He is about to rend the heavens and come to this earth, according to this book of Revelation. And he saith to me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship. He said, Don't do that. I'm your fellow servant. And so on. Worship God. Verse 11, I saw heaven opened, 
And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. And of course, most Christians don't like to believe that. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. He's going to come back in dramatic fashion, wearing a robe, looking like it is drenched and dripping blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies, angelic spirit beings, which were in heaven, followed him upon white horses, clothed in white linen, fine linen, white and clean, out of his mouth figuratively, a sharp sword that he shall smite the nations, and rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here then is the destruction. Verse 17, 18, and 19 of the beasts and their armies. Verse 19, I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gather together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And they're all cast into the lake of fire. In verse 20, 21, the beast and the false prophet. Chapter 20, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain, and laid hold on the dragon, bound him a thousand years, and he shall deceive the nations no more. In verse 4, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them, that's suke in the Greek, again figuratively, that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. Who are they but the ones we've been reading of over and over and over again, the 144,000, the innumerable multitude, the saints, converted Christians, people of God, where are they? They're on the earth when Christ gets here. I see them. Thrones are given to them. They live and reign with Christ a thousand years. You can't read the Bible in logical progression up to and including the time of the second coming of Christ without discovering saints on the earth right in the middle of things, right where it's happening, right where it's going on, witnessing to the leaders of the world, which costs them sometimes their lives. I don't know how these Protestant ministers do it. I don't know how they can take a scripture like that one I showed you over in Titus 2 and 13 and preach the way they do with those voices that they, they put on us on TV and the blessed hope and get people to believe they're going to be whisked away to heaven. I just don't understand it. But you stop to think about it the last time you heard a sermon in a Protestant church as to how much substance there was in your Bible, the Word of God, making it logical, making it plain, taking you from one logical thought to the next progressive logical thought, explaining and expounding the Word of God. You just don't hear it. It's, you hear a lot of neutral things. You hear about love and hope and faith, and well, you should. But you know, you would think they would run out of material after a couple of hundred years, but they haven't. They're still holding forth over here, maybe fifth. Anyway, they're holding forth in the, in the pulpits and preaching a lot of neutral pablum to people without really explaining the plan and the purpose of God. I asked down there, what on earth is God doing? And I probably will use something like that over in Dallas next time. And I had everybody agreeing with me that God is not stopping the nuclear arms race, is he? He is not stopping drought. He is not stopping the diminution of arable acreage or the advance of deserts. 
Did God wipe out polio or did the Salk vaccine? Oh, I give God every great glory and every great credit, but God is not trying to take credit for intervening in this world in any great way yet today. The word try does not exist in God's vocabulary. God will not try to save the world. God didn't try to save the world when Jesus Christ came the first time. If he had, he simply would have done it. He's not trying to save the world today. I ask then and I ask again, is that the best God can do? Ernest Angley, uh, Oral Roberts, uh, is that the best God can do, the best he can recruit? It's just dumbfounding to me to believe that, that I can look in Asia and India and Africa and I can see all of that and I can say, is God aware of the suffering of the human race? And then I see somebody claiming he sees some woman with cancer in the other end of the television screen out there and saying, be healed, be healed on Sunday morning television. I say, why doesn't he see 150 million starving Asians, Indians, people in Bangladesh and Indonesia and the Philippines with a life expectancy of 39, where 50% of the babies die in their first year? He doesn't see them. Why not do something about them? God is not emptying graveyards. God is not giving us 150 years of life impervious to disease. God is not interfering. He's not stopping these people from smoking in spite of the warning on the pack. He's not stopping emphysema and heart disease and lung cancer and cancer of the trachea and the lips and epiglottis and every other part of the glottis in the United States. He's letting people do what they want to. What is God doing? You look around and show me the dam that says, God built that dam to stop that flood. Show me the nation living in peace where it says, God gave this nation peace. No, God shows in his word that he is doing one thing, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God as a warning, as a challenge, as a witness, in some ways almost as a threat to the world, and then when sufficient have been warned and have been given a witness, will the end come. And that's what God is really doing on the earth today. Now, he will intervene in the private lives of individuals. He intervened in mine, intervened for my wife. I saw a miracle take place. Miracles can and do happen, but not as often and not as widespread as many people would like to think. God is going to save the world, but he is not going to whisk us away into a place of safety just before the really great challenge faces God's church. The rapture is absolutely untrue. It isn't found in the Bible, just like all the other Protestant doctrines, and I am glad to know the real truth. Those two scriptures that I gave you, Joel 2.31 and Matthew 24.29, are the key texts to help you totally confound anyone who believes in a rapture, the word before and the word after. It's impossible to misunderstand those words.